0: Welcome to She Been Ready, the podcast. She Been Ready is a conversation, a declaration, and a clarification that black women have always led. On this podcast, I, Dr. Wendy Williams, educator, psychologist, leader, and auntie, will be joined by black women who lead and those who have been led well by them. So, you don't have to get ready when you stay ready, and you can trust in the leadership of a black woman because she's been ready. You are your own fortune teller. You Know what you're going to be doing in the future. You know exactly what it's going to be because you are visioning it right now and working toward it every day, finding focus in that particular piece of the future and that vision every day, um, directing your steps each morning, each effort, each breath in that direction is what gets you closer to what you are imagining. You are your own fortune teller. These are the wise words of Dr. Robin Fisher, uh, who I interviewed uh, for episode five of She Been Ready, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Wendy Williams. And, you know, I just found Robin's words to be so profound, so insightful, almost um, fantastical. And then I wondered, why would I doubt that? Why would I? question or undermine the possibility that we are our own fortune teller we are the ones that have a vision for what our futures would be if we decide every day that we wanted to eat cake and you know <laughs> go in that direction gain weight and whatever that will lead to we would do that and if we decided that we wanted to live toward our freedom dreams we would do that too I was really inspired by Robin's perspective. And as she takes us through the trajectory of her, her life and her career and how she has landed where she is in, in her work, it dawned on me that we don't often enough have a view of our lives in which we are in the driver's seat and we see ourselves as not only imagining that future, but going out and getting it. Robin puts us in that space. You know, one of the things I asked her um, and that I ask all the interviewees is, you know, what advice would they give to someone up and coming, someone who needs, um, you know, to get a, a you know, a little wisdom. Robin said something quite interesting. And, and this, this framing came up as she shared a bit of her story because it's what her mentors and guides shared with her as she was coming through. She said that she would advise young people to find someone you trust who will Uh, watch you help, who will tell you when to watch your neck, who will tell you when to watch your neck, watch your back, pay attention to how you're moving, behaving, and what challenges and or opportunities that type of movement in the world will create for you. I felt these words were so wise, because we're constantly dealing with generational tensions from time to time, trying to figure out, you know, is this elder, is this person trying to stop me from realizing my greatness, my brilliance? Or are they actually trying to help me to navigate and find my way? And maybe it can feel like both. And perhaps maybe it is both. You never know. Maybe someone is motivated um, in a deleterious way for you, unfortunately. But that also might hold some information and some important wisdom that you might utilize as well. Robin is a very wise person. You can tell that she came um, up in a time when you know old school values really ruled the day and helped to guide the steps of young people. And she uses that same visioning toward her own work. We uh, entitled this uh, particular uh, podcast, this episode, Diasporic Visions, because it's the way she crafted educational leadership development work uh, for such a wide swath of people all across the state of California and actually beyond. Uh, She's a very powerful and engaging, dynamic human being, and I want to share with you a little bit of her story. Robin Fisher is president of the advisory board for Choose College Educational Foundations, Inc., and she's also the president and CEO of R.T. Fisher Educational Enterprises Incorporated. She's self-employed. She founded RTF in 1999. She's been in business for with herself for a very long time and also con- co-founded an umbrella initiative directed toward academic excellence in the Bay Area communities of color, um, including an organization that I came to know her through, the African-American Regional Educational Alliance, or as we call it, AREA, and you'll hear us refer to it by its short name, AREA as well as the Choose College Educational Foundation. So she's been really focused on educational achievement and advancement for young people in the Bay Area, where we're located um, in Oakland, but also beyond and through the state of California. Her educational consultancy and curriculum design work have impacted students across the state. Uh, For nearly 20 years, she has an ever-evolving curriculum and programming um, that provides models that target students' college readiness through the lens of cultural responsiveness and relevance. Presently, she's culminating, it culminates in the um, RTF Network's STEM Steps, or STEPS, which stands for Strategies to Empower and Prepare Students for Success. This is a program that is currently in its fourth year, and it follows a very rigorous field of research for young people to really figure out and learn about the STEM areas of study and also um, be Uh, um, exposed to uh, career pathways that might not otherwise been available to them. She, um, as an independent consultant, has lent her expertise to a number of federal, state, and local educational programs, such as TRIO programs, arches ie3 slope and access math initiatives california gear up the ronald mcnair scholars program the 21st century community learning centers and both the university of california and california state university systems she's currently the governor's appointee to the california reading and literature advisory board and she served two years as a senate's appointee to the statewide pupil assessment review panel what's remarkable about robin is that she takes that grassroots engaged work that happens in the consultancy and uses that knowledge and information to make real change and impact at the state level um, in government. What's magnificent about Robin's career trajectory is that she's had such a huge impact in the Bay Area. Her footprint is very clear, but also what is striking are the ways in which she's taking those experiences in the Bay throughout the state of California and extrapolated those to think about what we might learn about education, access, opportunity, and practices across the African diaspora. One of the things that I'm really excited about for our listening audience uh, to hear is, you know, how she's thought about that, why she intended it in these ways and why she's uh, crafted her work and her organization's work to focus um, across the globe, why a global initiative and focus on black children's education is so necessary and needed. I'm so thrilled that we have the opportunity to, to be with Robin today and for you to have an opportunity to be exposed to her work. Links to her website and some of the other projects that she's been working on are, are in our show notes and on her website. So please do a full perusal and get to know some of Robin's work. Think about how you might get involved. And with no further ado, our interview with Dr. Robin Fisher for She Been Ready, the podcast. But the first time that I met you, Robin, it was during the area meet and greet and you all... Um, Made me feel so special and welcome to the Bay Area uh, in 2019. I did. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I was so excited to take this position at Mills and become the dean. Um, and when I got here, because I've always lived and have done work in Black communities, mm-hmm. I was really excited to be welcomed by a community of Black educators.
1: Mm-hmm. It meant
0: so much to me because I felt um, like I was losing a little bit of that by moving from New York and from Brooklyn, New York mm. to California, because we know about the dwindling numbers of African-Americans in, in California, in the, in the city areas. And Oakland has always been a historically black community and has, you know, been violently gentrified. And so the ways that the push out and the kick out um, has happened has been quite aggressive. And so, you know, that is where my heart and soul is. And so I, when I went to the event, it was happening in Hayward and I forget the name of the, the restaurant, but it was plate. a love plate, thank you. <laughs> um, so you remember, um, so shout out to plate. Uh, <laughs> but when I went, um, there, you know, I, I was, I was excited and, um, and I was really taken up with the view of area and the, the conversation about being and working across the diaspora mm-hmm. and being in conversations and educational spaces across the diaspora. And so I know that area. And we've talked about like your consultation firm and how a lot of the work you do is in the state of California, which is vast and huge, you know, um, on the West Coast. And I was also very much struck by that more expansive and global vision of the work and where you were seeing some of the through lines. I'm in it. And so that has got me thinking about what I, you know, what sort of sparked that for me, but this conversation may go in many different places. But one of the things that you all said as we started the meeting and started the engagement was you know and how are the children
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know um, i remember then and even now i feel a little bit like just getting like a little emotional because that really is the question about Always. that is the question you know um, and that's where our focus should be it isn't there nearly enough of the time but it is and so um, it was very. It felt like a right orientation and a right space, and I felt like, oh, I found a nice space. And I know we moved, we uh, touched space after then, and it have been inseparable ever since. And that's great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we find, but we're like, oh
0: yeah, sure. you know, like, oh, bring her on people, but yeah.
1: people, but people, exactly. But yeah, and I was,
0: and I felt <laughs> grateful and honored too because I think that it is a type of familial space. And I also know that you can't invite everybody to that space. Mm. So I, I really was honored. Um, so that's kind of where I kind of, where I've entered into, you know, this podcast, this conversation, and also specifically wanting to talk to you. Um, do you have any thoughts or reactions or things that come up to mind for you as we're just, you know, chatting it up? Well, thank you for the
1: invitation. Again, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we, in area we are seeking out folks that are coming into the space. And so, Mm -hmm. because I also am familiar with meals. And so Mm -hmm. I have that information. I was like, Oh, sister had meals. Mm -hmm. We got to make sure that she is protected, right. (laughs) That she is covered (laughs) by, you know, all that she needs to be covered by because we know that environment and uh, area is really about acknowledging and honoring Mm -hmm. black people, black women when, Uh, They are doing the work that needs to be done so that they can answer that question, you know, and how are the children we need. And we wanted to make sure that you felt very um, assured Mm -hmm. that you had um, Mm -hmm. folks behind you, with you, beside you, in front of you. Uh, as you needed them, as you entered into this space, and so yeah.
0: uh, thanks for remembering that. And I, I'm I glad do. that it was impactful.
1: That's that it. Makes really me
0: happy. was. It really was. Because I do think to ask, and how are the children? You, I, what I hear implicit in what your response is too, is also making sure that we take care of ourselves. Absolutely. You know, making sure that we are happy and healthy and well and available, so that we can actually truly check in on the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did feel that coverage. Thank I felt you. it in two main places when I arrived, and I thought, "Oh, this is." Mm-hmm. I felt the cloak, and that was important because it did it did give me a little bit of the wind at my back to know that I could go forth and and do some of the things that I would like to do, knowing the kind of pushback that I might get. Uh, so Excellent. this, well, I'm glad you said <laughs> This podcast is called "She Been Ready," and been ready. she been ready, and it <laughs> is about the fact that. Um, one, women, Black women doing really amazing and important leadership work. Um, and that, um, you know, we often in, I think, traditional spaces are told or given feedback like, oh, well, you should maybe someone social mentor you and help you to have a sense of this. Or, you know, maybe you should go to this particular training and and do blah, blah, blah. And, you um, and I, I I believe in professional and personal development and growth. I do. I believe in constant improvement, continuous improvement, and learning, and and all that. But I also know that we don't encourage every one of those directions equally. And I also know that some people are, um, men folks um, who are white or white approximating, and or are in spaces where, um, where where they. You know are able to traverse those spaces differently um are given a chance are allowed to fail are allowed to be to mm-hmm. fail and be supported mm-hmm. and i think about this sort of push toward perfection in some ways that we have around black women's experiences and leadership mm-hmm. but not just black women but that's what this podcast is about mm-hmm. um and the fact that no you know she's been ready she knows how to do this i mean mm-hmm. certainly we can support and mentor someone while they're in the midst of their leadership journey and if we're honest We're born inside of that journey because we're leaders of ourselves and of communities. So that's the focus of the work. And so the first question that I ask every person that we have had on our our little podcast here is how you knew that you had been ready. How did you know? You know, what, what was the context? What was the work that you were doing? Did you think I need to be at the helm? Did you have critique? Were you always in charge all the time? Is it just your nature and what your personality was? you know, even from being a child up, how old were you? Your stage of career really matters. Um, and the responses to this question have been so vast because everyone has a different journey. But how did you know you've been ready? What was the context of that for you?
1: You know, I, I, I've i been thinking about what that looks like. And I think that there are different stages of being ready, right? Mm-hmm. So, And some, mm-hmm. of it, some of it was, you know, youth, right? So I would say around 20, you know, 27, 28, I had been working not in education. Thought I was on a completely different path. Was going to be doing more. Um, I thought uh, working in, you know, city government, government, um, okay. working for elected officials. You know, mm-hmm. kind of was in that in that realm of politics and you know what that looked like and meant. So I really thought that that was where I was going to be and what I was going to be doing. Uh, and then at about twenty five, twenty six, I was starting to have like a a crisis like i don't mm. want to do this and this is not what i want to do and i certainly started to question the leadership that i was supposed to be supporting so i mm-hmm. think that that's where it started to click like oh these are our leaders who we've elected but mm-hmm. i don't really believe in what they're what they're saying mm-hmm. or what they're doing and i don't want to compromise my integrity because i don't really believe that they believe what mm-hmm. they're saying uh so i needed to shift then that's when the, the Getting ready was was (laughs) enough for me to enough for me to say, I don't think this is what I need to be doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so at about that time, you know, mid-20s, when I was being tracked, you know, at that point, tracked into, you know, these positions where you can ascend to become whatever it is in Mm -hmm. in that realm of of work. And I started to say, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. So I think that was the beginning of the getting ready to be ready. Uh, and then after that, you know, there's some other pieces where I wasn't quite ready there, but I knew that inkling that something inside of me said, you don't want to do that. You mm-hmm. don't want to speak on behalf of others that, you know, you're questioning their integrity and mm. if they really believe what they're saying. And I for a couple of for a couple of folks, I didn't believe it. So okay. that was the first time when I was like, mm, something, listen to your gut, listen to your
0: intuition uh-huh. and get out of that space. Can I go a little bit deeper in there with you because sure. you say 26. I remember reading a book when I was 25. I think we're close in age called The Quarter Life Crisis. Do you remember that book? Or I that do idea? remember okay. that. I do. Yes. And, I, you know, it's, it's an interesting time to be 25, 20, you know, those, those mid twenties and, um, to be questioning, to be wondering like, um, am I starting off in the wrong direction? Do I mm-hmm. need to maybe, you know, adjust a little bit so that my art goes in a different, way or, you know, manifest in a different way as I'm aging, what did you notice? What were you critiquing about? What was it about what those leaders at that time were doing? Were they being inconsistent with their word? Were they, um, you know, did you witness unethical things? Did you witness, you know, maybe them trying to be people pleasing in in their effort? What was it that you saw that you said to yourself, I don't like that. I I would do it differently. I I wish they would do it this way, knowing that in some ways whatever you were thinking was a projection onto the type of leader that you ultimately are today and that what you were visioning for your future. What did mm-hmm. you see happening? You know, I think it was less about the leaders, it was the people that were surrounding them.
1: Okay. So right. Okay. So it was their chief of staffs, it was the staff around them, how we needed to, how we were being trained and mentored to support this individual. So I started to question whether or not this individual had their own thoughts, right? I was wondering who was it that really was helping make the decisions. And I was able to see Mm -hmm. in some, you know, you know, what was happening. I didn't know if I wanted to see all that was going on in the kitchen (laughs) and what that looked like and what that meant. But there was a lot of Mm -hmm. pot stirring that I was like, oh, this is what it looks like. I'm not so interested. It tastes, Mm. it just didn't taste um, like it was something that I wanted to be Mm. uh a part of uh and it was you you know so i don't know if it was that person that those leaders or if it was the people that surrounded them i think Mm -hmm. it was a a bit of both and i didn't want to be like those people that were Mm -hmm. surrounding i didn't want i'm not a yes person Mm -hmm. i wasn't thin i'm not now uh and i think that to a certain extent you have to be in those roles um and uh i think that they were you know there were some people who had an agenda that was was um, one that I wasn't interested in participating in. And I wouldn't have known until I was part of it, right? So uh, as I got into it and really saw it, and then I saw, you know, you know, to be told, you know, I went to a, um, a pretty liberal women's college, right? And uh, to be told in this environment that I was now in that, you know, you can't wear pants. The senator doesn't like his staff to wear pants. You're going to have to and I'm come, you know, thinking I'm ready to go. You're going to have to go shopping, dear. You know, the secretary shopping, dear, you know, the, the the men here, they need you to look this way and to be this way. So to even be in that space in my early 20s and now and thinking that 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 still is what it's like. And when you're going into these spaces and how you have to hold yourself and how I saw. The older women holding themselves. And I said, oh, you have to be, you have to do that. You have to be like this. And now you see them years later and they've of course moved out of that. But I said, no, that's not for me. I need to begin to adjust and figure out what I'm gonna do differently because uh, that's not something that I was interested in in pursuing. What sacrifices I have made, I made on my own. It wasn't because someone was gonna tell me that I had to do it this way. And that was eye-opening. And one of the major shifts when I said, oh, no, this isn't, this isn't for me.
0: <laughs> Your face went. That's know. a real story. That happened. I, I know like, you, I, I know and trust that that is a real story. I am so struck, I, you know, and I am not naive to imagine that there are women in their 20s being told similar things, even beyond the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And especially knowing the ways in which uh, women, Black women, Latinx women, Asian women, sort of, and when they're not famous or in Hollywood or whatnot, mm-hmm. don't have the same protections around highlighting that experience in the professional space and what we call professionalism and how sexism and white supremacy can be interrelated and integrated around those notions. So, I, yeah. That was a lot to hear actually um, and kudos to you for having a sense of self to resist that. Um, hmm. So your work has invariably uh, centered on promoting student success. Um, I would love to hear how you went from the, the, the uh, public government basing to this educational consultation that you do now. And, and maybe that's a longer journey but I think that that's important for our group to hear as well. Um, but promoting student success and life opportunities. Um, I would love for you to situate us at your knee. Like, if we're just sort of leaning in and just kind of looking up at you, Robin, and like taking in your story. <laughs> That's um, uncomfortable. Look. <laughs> well, just I'm thinking like in an elder perspective, like sitting. Oh, in, no. Yes. Of course. Yeah, it's, like, still uncom- <laughs> it's still uncomfortable. That's
1: not a place oh. that I, I sit very often in. So, yes. Yeah, so, yes.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll lean back, and because we do experience you as a wise a wise woman. I won't call you an elder. You're not there yet. I'm kind of getting lot, there. You're getting there, but I'm you're, you're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> you're there in, in your heart and mind, not there necessarily in years. Um, you know, but I would love to hear about your work. Um, what is it? How would you describe it? Why did you choose this particular approach to educational consultation? How did you get there? I really would love to hear that transition and that that journey um and why did you choose this approach to the consultation to respond to that call for this work what happened to get you here
1: you know i i've been thinking about that too when i was working in public the public sector as far as government was concerned you know we were very involved with the greater community and we were situated next to a large public university and Uh, We would get news about what was happening at that university, this elected official wanted to make sure that this university was, you know, a partner and what that looked like. So I was privy to lots of inside information and one one piece of information that we um, had access to was how black students uh, were doing at this particular university, particularly as it related to athletes. And these athletes uh, were young men who um, were um, brought from all over the country as athletes are for colleges and they were um, not graduating from this university as a matter of fact they would be you know they'd figure out ways so that they could be in school the longer right so they'd be six seven years and we get in this information and I see this information and I'm wondering what in the world is happening so I just go to the campus one day and I'm asking around. No, this is not in any official capacity. I just was really curious because originally I wanted to be a journalist. So this kind of was my my way of doing my own investigative kind of report because I was so curious as to this data that said that Black men were not graduating from this university and it had been a trend for several years. So I went and I just started talking and looking around and uh, started um, meeting people and they didn't know who I was. And I didn't say where I worked because I think it would have alarmed them uh, because you know it, it carried a little bit of weight with respect to why I might be in the space and develop some relationships with those folks. And after developing relationship with those folks, we started to really understand what the issue was, started to create programming around it. Again, no official capacity at that point, this was all volunteer. Uh, at this at this point of the work that involved with some some civic organizations national civic organizations they stepped in and we really created this um, initiative to change the trajectory of those young men specifically uh, at that university and when doing that that allowed me to be in the higher ed space now when i was uh, first doing the work with the california state senate one of my areas of support was in higher education. And so this allowed me to kind of dig deep into what that looked like and what that meant. And then I was asked to just in that, in the capacity for working with the selected and doing this uh, volunteer initiative, was asked to uh, consider taking on some work with a new program or revised program that was taking place called um, the Student Opportunity and Access Program. And it had been in um, this area, but then it was defunct because I didn't wanna know really why, but something happened and they needed someone else to take that space because not only were black men not graduating, what we found is that students of color were not persisting on through. And so I did take on, um, I went, I said yes, and went through a process to you know, be you know, identified and selected for this position. And that then really got me into education, right? That's when I really was doing work at, in a pre-college kind of program, became a director of a, a student outreach and academic program, really begin to see statewide what that looked like and meant. And again, still early, I would say this is later 20s, Uh, And then what I started to see in the state of California is that fewer and fewer conversations about what was happening for Black children in the state of California were starting to not be uh, talked about, right? There were other groups that were, there was lots of conversation, lots of resources, and we wanted to share, and I wanted to make sure that anybody who was part of our programs got access to them, but Black students weren't being outreached to, um, Black community wasn't part of the the plans uh, with respect to the work that we were trying to accomplish. Uh, We weren't able to really um, speak about specific needs. And that didn't sit right with me. So as I was in this position, learning all that I could about what it meant to do this work, uh, I started to get ready that I think maybe I can do this on my own. Maybe I don't need to be associated with an institution uh, because very similar to where, where I was before this theme of You're trying to control the narrative. You're trying to control my narrative. You're trying to control what it is that I think is necessary to say. And you want me to say that out into the world, that that's what this university believes. And I don't believe that you believe that. So it comes back to, I don't believe you. I don't believe you as an elected that you believe that I don't believe as an institution, you believe this. So it may make more sense for me to try this on my own. And so, that's when I, that was right when, I mean, I remember I turned 30 and I quit my job and I moved out of that particular area. And I said, I'm just going to do it on my own. Uh, So that was 30. I said, let's try it. Let's just make it happen. Let's see what, it can't be any worse than what currently is happening. I know I have skill, I can work, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. let me just see what it would be if we started something that could be focused on the things that I believed in, that I thought required attention. And that's when I decided to, you know, leave, they say the plantation, I ran away. I was a <laughs> runaway slave, let me tell you. I was, I ran away and didn't look back and people were wondering, you know, like, what are you gonna do mm-hmm. and how are you gonna make it? You know, my family and close mentors. And I was like, I don't know, but I'm not staying there. Yeah. Um, so, and and there I, I ran away and I've been, um, a fugitive ever since you're so funny a fugitive.
0: <laughs> um, I can't tell you how met, how often the metaphor of enslavement you know manifests in these conversations because mm-hmm. sometimes when folks you know are talking about how they got ready or been ready they they have began their own thing and that's part of how that leadership journey began for them
1: mm-hmm.
0: wow yeah
1: So felt mm -hmm, like I -hmm. was, and I, and there was no reason for most people to see the way I was comfortable. Right. I was on track. I had always been kind of that on track from a leadership perspective, Mm -hmm, you know, I, mm -hmm. and people valued that and mentored me and thought that I was next in line. And I just, it just didn't feel like Mm -hmm. something for me.
0: I think we got to explore that a little bit, because I think that there are a lot of people who, um, their transition away from positions of comfort, or being on the fast track, or you know all the rest, um, is a surprise to their mentors or a surprise mm-hmm. to others in the establishment wherever they are. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like for you in terms of, you know, articulating, crafting, taking the leap on you? Um, how did you know that that was the right thing to do, whether at that moment or afterward?
1: You know, I think I, until
0: maybe just a few years
1: ago, still questioned if it was the right thing to do, right? And um, you know, in my deep down, I know that it was, but it has been really challenging. So when it gets really challenging, I'm always wondering like, girl, you could have had four weeks vacation and a pension and a this and a that, and you are working around the clock, trying to figure out how to make this happen. And so I think just most, maybe in the last, you know, five, seven years where I've always questioned, there was, I was glad that I, I did it, but I always wondered what if I hadn't. So um, I would say just most, you know, again, most recent, most recent um, period have I been very comfortable with the decision. I knew I had to do it. I knew I didn't want to go back. Um, and I always have in the back of my mind, maybe I need to go back. Uh, and again, in the last few years, I was like, nah, you're, you're you're not institutionalized anymore. You can't, I don't even know how you'd be able to function within that construct any longer. Uh, so I would say just most recently, you know, in the, in, as far as your life is concerned, uh, where I, I started to say, oh, that was a good decision. I, I think that that was the best thing for you then. And I just don't know i just i think i just stepped out on truly on faith then and relied on you know what i knew how to do and how i knew how to do it to make it happen but it wasn't planned all, all that to say it wasn't a plan i didn't mm-hmm. i didn't leave knowing that it was going to be how it is today i left saying i can't do that that doesn't sit right with my spirit so i'll figure something else out and i rather figure it out and not compromise who I think that I want to be. And I didn't know exactly who that was yet, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to compromise that. So it was easier and better for me to say, mm. I'm going to do it this way. And mm. so, yeah, it, it, um, and I didn't burn any bridges. I kept, I kept all my mentors. So they're all in these spaces that are, you know, the track, and they still supported wh- who I was and they still supported the vision. They weren't quite sure what it was, but they believed in me too. So I believed in me not as much as they did, but Mm -hmm. I believed enough Mm -hmm. so that I knew that, you know, this was the right decision for
0: me. Mm. What a step out on faith. And I've met some of your mentors, so I know how caring and loving and um, supportive they are. Um, and especially, you know, I can only imagine how worried and concerned about you they must must have been and at the same time had your back. So, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, you know, your, your story, even as you're speaking now really speaks to that full range of the students experience, whether it's higher education or, you know, very, um, young and, and early in their, in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think about, you know, whether it's your firm or the service that you um, provide to the profession, that it really is the hearts and minds of children um, that are at the center and the Mm -hmm. hearts and minds of children of the African diaspora who are at Mm -hmm. the center. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you came to this space of really centering um, the experience, the the teaching and learning experiences and the the development experiences of, of Black children across the globe. Mm -hmm. Um, How, you know, what is the underlying philosophy of of centering their their academic life and their development in your work?
1: I think that again, I had the opportunity when I worked in in higher ed to be a part of a, a travel group to Ghana. And I was able to take my youngest sister, she was about 13 at the time. And we went to Ghana for almost a month and I was able to see and have um, her also see the world outside of the way that we had been conditioned to see it and to think about what that looked like and meant. And to be able to, you know, be in the, you know, Elmina castle as they call it and look out the door of no return and know that you actually returned, that changed my life. That's when I knew that I couldn't do anything that wasn't going to honor those that survived so that I could survive. And that moment for me made me figure, want to know, well, how did all of us as survivors, how did we do that? And what does that look like? And I wanted to understand that so much. I mean, that was like the center of what I want, that it has shifted everything that I I do moving forward, that I needed to honor what that experience of, you know, the hundreds of people, the thousands of people whose shoulders I stand on, literally my great, 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 great grand people, right? What they would expect for me to do. And it literally was me looking out at the door of no return and saying that I returned. And when I did that, Wendy, to be honest with you, I I was then trying to figure out how do I honor and work with people and understand the diaspora. I already started to make up stories. I already started to figure out, you know, what would that narrative be? And then once I did decide, and that was, that was a few years before I did decide to leave um, and start my, my own work was, but it was based off of that trip and how can I center the African diaspora. It also was a, the first summer that I was able to go to in Ghana a pan-African festival so that I could see people from all over the world they came for this pan-African festival and I was like we are everywhere right and what does the diaspora really look like and mean and when you're there in a pan-African festival from people from Canada, from people from the UK, from people from you know all over the world starting from this continent then I said okay there's something that we need to figure out here. And so that's where it started to be quite honest. And then after that, everything has now been centered around how can we put black children, the African experience, the Africana ways of knowing in everything that we do. And so after that trip,
0: okay, yes. And what you is know, it that you I can think, talk about it. <laughs> I know, and I feel your juice, your energy plan. but what yes. is it about placing, what is it about knowing that you feel is essential for black children to know and to have.
1: Um, if and I and that was the first thing I said, oh, I wish I could bring children here. Because yeah. if they knew, if mm-hmm. our children in the United States knew and understood and felt what it meant for them to be alive, like what it took for them to actually be alive and experience that and see what that looks like and means. Um, it would shift the way that they feel about themselves, right? The way that they see themselves, mm-hmm. that they, that they started way before enslavement and what that looks like. It means that there's such a great history that they are connected to like by DNA, which is why I do STEM a lot because I want them to actually see scientifically right. Mm-hmm. This isn't just made up. It's not magic. Yes. Scientifically the data, we are connected in ways that we can actually use science to do. So for me, I think that when our children really can see themselves as the beginning of the creators of the inventors of the amazing, you know, that when we certain things like for our students, when we think about um, they try to place this Black History Month, you know, and they talk about picking cotton and what that looks like. No, what we said was it was who actually created the the meal for the cotton. It was folks that said, oh, it don't make no sense to be picking this cotton like this. We're tearing up our hands, but they want us to do this uh, crazy thing of putting how many hundreds of pounds per day. Let's figure out how we do that. We need to separate these seeds. That was, those were Black people that figured mm-hmm. out how mm-hmm. to mechanize that and make yes. that better and what that looked like because mm-hmm. our that's our ingenuity. And if our yes. kids really understand that that's the critical thinking, that's the, the way out of no way that we talk about that they have inside of them Mm -hmm. literally, right? It flows through their veins literally. Mm -hmm. Then I think that that shifts the way that they approach math that people want to make seem that they can't do or they approach the way that they do X, Y, and Z. And so uh, Mm. I, I, I see it in every place that we've been able to travel and take children and what that looks like, they get it. And that's what we want to be able to do in our work. Mm -hmm. If I can't take you, how do I, how do I cultivate? That's Mm -hmm. why we say cultivate brilliance. How do I cultivate that in every experience that you have so Mm -hmm. that that self agency and efficacy really shines Mm -hmm. through?
0: Beautiful. Um, And I I asked that question because I feel like sometimes we have to make that explicit because sometimes we, we feel it in our hearts and we know it in our souls, but there's something about. Making that explicit to a wider group of people and to understand the, the why beneath that. Yes. Um, so, as an education leader, you take a design perspective uh, in your work. Um, and so, if we were to engage a backward design for leaders of tomorrow, um, what would we be doing in schools now to facilitate that? Maybe you've, you know, part of what you've just shared is a part of that, but I'm just wondering, you know, mm-hmm. how would you? Think that we would craft and organize ourselves um, to move forward?
1: I think the one question that I would ask before starting anything mm-hmm. is to what end? Like, to what end are we doing this? Is it mm. this, this, or this? And really be clear about the difference between being truthful and honest, right? Mm-hmm. And, and tell the truth. Now, to what end are we doing this? And tell me more about why that is. Mm -hmm. And then if we could get, you know, current educators to really get to the heart of why they're proposing what they're proposing. Mm -hmm. And if it isn't the question to what end, so that you could answer the question and how are the children, then is that something that you need to be doing? Mm -hmm. And is there a way that you can begin to take everything else out of the picture? To what end are you doing that? And are you able to answer the question and how are the children And if those two things connect then whatever you design will be a design that will support what it is that you're really trying to accomplish which is encourage and you know develop children to whatever it is that they want to be within the context of how they are their well-being Mm -hmm. and I think if we did that honestly and truthfully and looked at all the variables so that we really could answer those two questions to what end are you doing, what you're doing, and do you have children centered in the work that you are proposing? Then
0: our design would look differently, our outcomes would look differently. You know, there's obviously in, in our public political moment a big conversation around truth and truth-centering black people in particular, you know, the um, and I would say truth centering um, the stories and histories, the accurate telling of histories and tell, uh, from the perspectives of those who experienced, um, experience it. And I guess I, am wondering what, you know, your thoughts have been about that because you're specifically saying that to know the truth would actually be, you know, um, would actually be by design a way to live in and liberate and empower young people to be the leaders of tomorrow um what have you been thinking about this conversation around critical race theory you know equalizing that with history the banning of books of late the stories that are being you know uh just circumvented if you will and 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 maligned um the are stories that are telling the experiences of actual real people in the world and their journey you
1: know the critical race theory debate is so interesting to me because it's it's not intended it, it it's not intended to be used in the way that it's being used in a k-12 arena and i think that those that are politicizing it and those don't understand that so it really shows their ignorance quite honestly um and so i, th- I you know i want when people are talking about it I, i'm cringing saying that's not that's not what that means that's not what that's intended to do you know that's And so being able to be delicate enough about correcting wrong, because that's just not true, right? The truth is always going to be the way to go. And I think that what's happening is the truth is, I think, is that this country was built in a way that it was built and that it is in our framework, if we want to, that is undeniably linked to race and there's no denying that and if we can get folks to see that that if you tell the truth and if his, history is the the beacon by which to do that you can have conversation about it, but the truth is the truth this is what it did this did actually happen And this is the evidence that that's the case. Now, now that we know that, now what do we talk about? What does that mean? What does that look like? But you can't ban the truth. The truth is there. Um, And we're all living manifestations of what that truth looks like. So I think it's actually um, inappropriate in K-12 to use this idea of critical race theory without really understanding what the theory is. And I think it's important that we provide some context to those that um, are, you know, confronted with it. Primarily, our, our boards of education, uh, who are not necessarily educators, who can't necessarily, you know, that's just not. It, and the, so there's a there's a, um, what's it called? There's a um, gap there. Uh, So we have boards of education saying that these things can't happen, but they're not educators. They don't really know what that means and what that looks like. So you have this divide here of those that are trying to do what needs to be done in schools, teach the truth from the perspective of what history looks like and means, and those that are legislating from a place that they really don't understand. Um, So uh, I think it's very complex uh, and uh, it's it's very American. I wasn't <laughs> expecting you to say that. short-sighted. Mm-hmm. You know, quick to decisions, not really thinking about to what end, not being real critical thinkers about what that looks like. Fast to make decisions. Of
0: this exactly. Yeah, I mean, I there was a uh, um, gosh, a uh, political. Um, strategist um, on the Republican side who basically said that they were going to take and use, you know, was really explicit and transparent around this as a strategy. Um, Sadly, it worked even when he told us that that's what he would do. Um, But also, um, you know, perhaps taking advantage on and leaning on that, that short-sightedness that you're talking about and that inability to maybe grapple with complex thinking. Um, And I can only imagine from your stance in education, and I know that it's one that I have, that I do think that it is reflective of our educational systems that on a mass level, uh, folks can be as vulnerable as they have been to the type of manipulation. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. So one important element of the conversations on "She Bem Ready" uh, is to think about the Black women early on in their careers and who are listening. So I thought about them as, uh, as soon as you started speaking about your 26-year-old self um, and that quarter-life experience. If you were to speak to your younger self or imagine the mentees that you support, um, what words of advice or wisdom would you impart as they face into their leadership journey? Yeah.
1: I would I would tell her, tell me to <laughs> to get ready. Right. So, here, <laughs> and, and, right. And this and this is how you get ready. Right. Yeah. That This is how you begin to. You really do journal and document your experiences and you'll look back. You, you really do keep all keep all those notebooks that you have of your ideas. Mm. Make sure that you keep them in a safe place nice and warm and dry. Don't leave them somewhere. Take them with you because you will use them again. Your young self knows more than what you Mm. think, right? And Mm -hmm. it comes out in ways that you wouldn't even imagine. I look back on books when I was 26 through 35 Mm -hmm. and I was like, I thought that I was ahead of my time. I should write and and, and use that now Mm -hmm. uh, with the respect. So I would tell her yes, you get ready. This is, this is what you do. Every experience document it. every experience, try to remember what happened and what that mm-hmm. looks like. Uh, you're your own fortune teller. You're your own person you're that can look into the future. future. You know, you, there is no crystal ball. You're writing it down. You'll go
0: back and look and say, ah, that was a good idea. You're I knew I knew what I knew. I you are. You say that you're your own fortune teller. I, you know, I think part of what might happen for folks, and I don't know if this feels relevant to your journey or what you've seen with folks that you connect with, but that you may not they may not be valuing what they're thinking. They may not mm-hmm. be respecting their intellectual capacity and contribution. They may not think it's important. It's really hard, I think, to see yourself in that role when the world tells you over and again that you are unimportant mm-hmm. and that you do not matter. I think
1: so too. And that's why I would say they're looking for you to believe that. Don't believe that. Mm. Right? Don't, they, that's what they need you to believe. They want you to have this angst and they want you to feel like, no, you are powerful beyond any measure. And if that's the case, keep doing what you're doing. Now, watch yourself. Now, I did have people, I would probably say some of the things that people told me. Mm. You know, I was in a meeting with elders and, you know, I would start to get, and they were like, oh, oh watch your nexus watch your neck, you know, you can't be in this meeting doing all that. So I would tell my younger self to there are protocols, there are things look around, be in spaces, Mm -hmm. listen, Mm -hmm. you know, be attentive, learn from your elders, Mm -hmm. be thoughtful about what they have some, you know, be humble, be be that you're smart, you have a lot of things going for you, but there's a lot to learn. So sit your time is coming, I promise, you Mm -hmm. know, so those are the things that I would say, um, to myself because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you're you young and invincible and think you've got it all together. Mm-hmm. And you do, you do. And there's so much to learn. So just absorb it and find someone that you trust that will tell you to watch your neck,
0: you know? Mm. <laughs> I, well, can I call you to tell me to watch mine? <laughs> you know, I think part of that is the authenticity space that folks Um, particularly women and and women of color, black women, Latinx women, Asian women, you know, are often, you know, um, in the position of people telling them that their natural way of experiencing themselves and the cultural ways of that manifest. And I'm very mindful that we're not a monolith and that there Mm -hmm. are diverse ways in which it will show up, but that in in many ways, we're just told that we have to behave like someone else in order to be taken seriously. Um, and I think that yeah. is true, actually. I think that we just need to be honest about that. That's true. Um, yeah, so watching. <laughs> and this, this,
1: and, and here's the thing, and this is what my folks though, So it's, it's with older black women that Mm -hmm. they're saying, oh, oh, you got attitude. I mean, so it's Mm -hmm. even about Mm -hmm. in our, in, Mm -hmm. in other black professionals, Mm -hmm. they're the ones that said to me, Mm -hmm. you know, you with, wait a minute, sis, Mm -hmm. you know, you with that. So they also Mm -hmm. were the ones that were regulating this one with the others. This is with us. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. also, what does that mean within our own
0: Oh, absolutely! Absolutely, and respect,
1: and being humble, and what that looks like—not yeah. to defer. Now, I was one of those sisters that said, "You know, I was always—I was around older people all my life," um, and so mm-hmm. very precocious, around grown, as I say, just grownish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a there's a familiarity that you have, but also I would tell my younger self that. You, I'm much more respectful now than I was as a young woman and respect is, is you can still be authentic in yourself, Mm -hmm. but you respect um, folks and you give them Mm -hmm. credit for Mm -hmm. the work that they've put in and Mm -hmm. you honor Mm -hmm. the journey that they have. And and sometimes younger people don't have that appreciation. I would say that I didn't at a younger age until I did. And then those women said, this is why. Mm -hmm. And now they're some of my best friends, right? They're some of Mm -hmm. my best mentors. Mm -hmm. Because as a younger woman, I saw these women in their 50s saying, you'll get there. And I'd say that to my younger self, you'll get there. You'll be ready. You already are, but we're gonna get you really ready. Get you as we say, ready, ready, right? That's when
0: you know you're really ready. Don't be ready, ready. (laughs) Oh gosh, oh gosh. (laughs) Well, well, you know, Robin, I again, I started this by saying that you know we really haven't had as many of these types of opportunities where I could just ask you questions like this so part i I'm gonna be inviting you to lunch or dinner or something, but so okay, we can do this yeah, like in a real way, yeah. yeah, um because I'm really appreciating just learning about you know realize like, oh, I've not really done this with it because we've all, we've been so work focused on various right. project oriented when I think we have that in common um. And so with that, and our last question for today um, is just to sort of hear what you're up to, what's your work, your visioning, you know, what are you, what's going on? What are you manifesting? What are you hoping for? I'm hoping for less
1: of what I don't want to do and more of what I want to do. Okay. And that, and, and I say mm. that because uh, I've been on the you know retreats and whatnot and I put mm-hmm. some things in some buckets and I said, Here are the <laughs> projects, here are the projects that I I despise. Mm-hmm. Like I, I hate it. I'm doing it because I have to pay a rails, right? Yeah, yeah, right. A bill. So I these are projects that I hate and I use that despise. Hate. I mean, I just they just make me nervous and give me anxiety. Here are the projects that could go either way. They could be I kind of hate them and I kind of like them but they're in the middle. So mm-hmm. mm, they're on the fence either way. And then there's these projects that I love mm-hmm. and that I get so excited and I light up and I wake up ready to go. And when I started to put those projects into those different buckets, mm-hmm. um, the ones that I, that I despised, I literally, uh, in the next set of work said, I'm not ever doing that again. Mm-hmm. Those that were in the, on the fence, uh, I either made them like love or not like, And now those those that were in the not, you know, on the fence of not like Mm I have phased those out of the work. And now I am literally on the cusp of those things that, you know, we've decided that we're not going to do anymore Mm -hmm. uh, and that we're in that love bucket and what that feels Mm -hmm. like. That's what this work is manifesting, being able to work with organizations that are interested in really partnering and being thoughtful about. It takes time and allyship to move a school, a district from point A to point Z. And I wanna be that partner with you. And mm. this is what it looks like and putting everything on the table and saying, we to do this work are going to ask to what end are we doing this? And can we answer the question and how are the children? And mm. that's what our work is really about.
0: Mm. You Marie kondo your projects. I sure did. Do I like it? Do I love it? Do I, you know. I sure did. And it Mm -hmm. was the most liberating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was
1: in 2019. In 2019. And then those things have been phasing them out, right? Mm -hmm. So I've invested in contract and they might've been, so I didn't renew that contract. Right? So when that contract was up, you know, I finished my obligations, I let it go. Mm-hmm. Or this saying things like this is the last time. So giving people this is the last time we're doing X, or this is the last summer we're doing Y. Mm-hmm. And it feels good to get transitioned into that. Mm-hmm. The one thing about the pandemic, it forced me. I wrote this 10-year plan, but it forced me to, to bump that up, right? So mm-hmm. in 20, whenever that was 20, the right before the pandemic, I had we did a 10-year plan and it said by March 2020, um, two of our, you know, our staff members will be working remotely two days per week. So that's mm-hmm. why I said you're your own fortune teller, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it bumped up. Everybody was virtual. So we're in a position of evolving in the sense that we're almost back to, you know, doing, you know, less no office space, learning how to, to embrace technology, partnering with districts to be much more thoughtful about how they mm-hmm. do this work and always always keeping children at the center working on our educational travel program again coming full circle uh exploring mm-hmm. the diaspora we're heading to you know we've been we've done the the um, cuban trip we've done mm-hmm. the haiti trip we've done the european di- looking at the diaspora from a European. Perspective of, you know, what in the world was wrong with those people and what were they thinking and what that looked like. I mean, and now we're going to St. Lucia and Martinique and Barbados and Trinidad and Tobago to understand, you know, again, how, uh, again, that's, di- the, you know, how in the diaspora we've mm-hmm. been where we have been mm-hmm. and our experiences are so similar, but yet so different.
0: Uh, so that's where we're heading next. And we're going to keep go, studying, Robin, Come I on. Go. Yeah, I, it's going to be awesome. T- I, yeah, please. I'm serious. Send me some information because um, I remember we absolutely. talked about it in a different context and I forgot to follow up. I want to be mindful and respectful of your time and just so thankful for for your time and your sharing your generosity. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before we finish up? Thank you. I mean, this was fun.
1: I mean, I like to I like to just have conversations about, you know, hmm makes you think about how did you get to where you where That's you are right right? That's right it's just it's just fun to, to reminisce it's not into. magic it's you not you know magic. there's a
0: story and i guess one of the hopes that i have for this particular project i'll be honest i've always been um a pretty ambitious little girl and woman and i want for y- younger folks uh women who are wanting to start and expand and do something to hear how it has been done. And, mm-hmm. you know, we t- joked about like elder and elder, why elder went up, but there is something about this middle stage that I think has some really important bricks and foundational pieces that can be so informative for folks. So I, you know, very inspiring just to learn more about you, friend and just hear your story. And I'm, I'm grateful that you've allowed, you know, yourself to come on so we can share it with others. Well, thank you so much for the invitation.
1: And anytime, let's go okay. out for lunch, dinner, I'm ready.
0: Okay, I'm going to (laughs) follow.